Dams are inverted nests. If icebergs hibernated, it'd be in the summer. For crabs, being crabby is a good thing. Poison was nature's idea, not ours. Sand is dirt you can count. Some brooks babble, some burble. Woodpeckers, woodchucks, wood scold, which is fake. Judge a swarm solely by its intentions. My problem is with cats that always land on my feet. So many stars! Hello, and welcome to the 30th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast that I make with my friends about whatever we want, as long as the whatever that we want is in some way connected to the outdoors, which sometimes just means that it's connected to this podcast, which is about the outdoors, which therefore connects anything that's connected to this podcast to the outdoors as well. Think of it in terms of a mathematical formula. If A equals B and B equals the outdoors, then A equals the outdoors. So let's plug in some specific examples for the variables so that I can make my point perfectly clear. Let's say that A is a selection of apps from a catalog of items available from a company called Gentleman's Mills, and B is a podcast about the outdoors. So if that selection of apps from a catalog of items available from a company called Gentleman's Mills is equal to a podcast about the outdoors, and the podcast about the outdoors is equal to the outdoors, then the selection of apps is equal to the outdoors. Let's also substitute the word related for the word equal, because the word equal is also a variable in that equation, which a lot of people don't know. So yes, a selection of apps from Gentleman's Mills is related to the outdoors, and I just proved it using one of the universal languages, mathematics. Another of the universal languages is Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry, which is why they shot it into space along with mathematics in case alien life finds it. But as much as I love Johnny B. Good, though perhaps not quite as much as Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, I find it easier to justify the content of this podcast by using the universal language of mathematics than by using the universal language of Johnny B. Good. Alright, so moving on, you've probably noticed that the part with the intro music is correct this time, and the rest of the episode is going to be correct too. The correct music is going to be back in the correct spots, the format is fixed, everything is fine. Does this mean that I recovered the data from my broken external hard drive? Certainly not. That thing is dead to me. And dead. No, I didn't recover my data, but I did figure out how to listen to old episodes of this podcast on iTunes. It turns out that the ghost wasn't preventing me from accessing the old episodes on iTunes. I was doing something wrong. I would rather not say what I was doing wrong, but I'll just say that even if something is widely considered to be intuitive, that doesn't mean that it can't be more intuitive. And I think that the makers of iTunes, whoever they are, should take that to heart. Anyway, the point is that the ghost that haunts this podcast didn't actually have anything to do with the fact that I couldn't listen to old episodes to determine how everything was supposed to go. Unless it scrambled my brain somehow, which I don't think it's capable of doing, but which it definitely would do if it were capable of doing so. I don't want you to misconstrue this correction as an apology to the ghost. I will never apologize to the ghost. The goal of this correction is to take some of the blame for not being able to figure out iTunes on myself and to put the remaining majority of the blame on iTunes, computers, and just a general lack of adequate intuitiveness uh, of every aspect of our society. I mean... Wasn't the society supposedly founded on intuitiveness? And now look at us. No one cares about intuitiveness anymore. Oh, sure, they'll give lip service to it. But where's the effort to continually push intuitiveness forward? There are so many things that haven't become even one iota more intuitive since my childhood. Sure, I can use most of them pretty proficiently by now, but that's just because I've had 34 years of practice. Lord knows they haven't gotten more intuitive... If I encountered a refrigerator for the first time today, would I have an easier time figuring it out than I would have if I had first encountered a refrigerator at age 34 in, say, 1980? Of course not, and you know I'm right. Anyway, the ghost didn't interfere with the podcast last month, but that doesn't make the ghost any better in any way. The mere fact that I could reasonably suspect the ghost of such an intrusion is proof of its shameful character. Alright, so, well, last month's musical mix-ups and general confusion resulted in several emails from concerned listeners. Uh, I've got a selection of them here. Listener Gordon said, That's not the right music for the battery. Thanks, Gordon. I know that now, and I fixed it for this episode. Uh, Let's see. Listener Kimberly said, 
Uh, you used the wrong music for the intro. Well, like I already said in the intro, and like you've already heard by now, that's fixed in this episode. So, yeah, it's fine. Listener Wendy wrote in to say... Uh, I'll get a scroll... That's not what the Regarding the Dawn music sounds like. Okay, well, I know that now, Wendy, but first of all, who cares what happens to that segment? And second of all, actually, that is what the Regarding the Dawn music sounds like. It just wasn't the actual song that they usually use. So I hate to say it, but you're wrong, Wendy. Listener Ivan wrote, Gentleman's Mills is going to be mad when they hear that you used the wrong song for their segment. Nice try, Ivan. But the gentleman never listened to Out of All Doors, so they have no idea what song I used under their segment last episode, or any episode. So stop trying to sow discord between me and my one remaining sponsor. Uh, A listener who goes by Alvin, which I assume is a last name, said, I'm sure you've already been told this, but you used the wrong music for the battery. Well, Alvin, you're right about two things. First, that I used the wrong music for the battery. And second, and this is the one that I want to draw attention to, that I had already been told. So, if you were so sure that I had already been told, why write in to tell me? Are you one of these internet pedants who I've been hearing about? You probably say, well, actually, which I've gathered is one of the greatest sins you can commit on the internet, which includes email, which is what you sent to me. And while you didn't say, well, actually, to me in the email, thank God, you did openly express the belief that there was no point to your email, and yet you sent it anyway, which has to be as bad as saying, well, actually, if not worse. And I think the people who get so upset about those kinds of things will agree with me. And if they don't, then I will be happy to provide them with an unsolicited explanation about why what you did is as bad as saying, well, actually. Uh, Let's see. A listener named Georgia, who might be named after the country, not the state, so you shouldn't assume, said... I'm sure no one else will notice, so I just had to write in to tell you that you used the wrong music for the battery. Wrong, Georgia, wrong! Well, you're right that I used the wrong music for the battery, but you were wrong to believe that no one else would tell me. You're less annoying than Alvin because at least your wrong belief justifies your email, but still, you're pretty annoying because, let's face it, wrong beliefs are annoying. Especially when accompanied by the certainty of a phrase like, I'm sure. Because now, I mean, the question has to be asked, Who was more wrong? Me for using the wrong song for the battery, or Georgia for being sure that no one else would tell me I used the wrong song for the battery? The answer is clear. Georgia was more wrong. Fortunately, since she emailed me, I have her email address right here. Let's see. Dear Georgia, well, actually, I'm sure you'll hear this multiple times on the episode as you listen to it over and over, according to what I'm sure is your usual routine, but I'm going to go ahead and send the email anyway so you can be alerted to your wrongness as soon as possible. But remember when you said you were sure no one else would notice that I used the wrong song for the battery? Well, actually, many people noticed. So you know how you thought you were doing me a favor? Well, actually, you weren't. Because I had already been told several times, and I had also already figured out how to re-listen to old episodes and figured it out by myself. And I hate to say this, but I've actually just started to compile an official list on poster board of listeners who email me and who are wrong about things. And your name is now on the top of the list. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash hugepop where you can hear extra bonus content for as little as a dollar a month. Sincerely, Adam Drent. And I'll just click send. Okay, last letter. It's from Lance. It says, thanks and congratulations for using the correct music on the visualization exercise for the 29th consecutive episode last month. Thank you, Lance. Let's begin, shall we? Thank you.
We note the smoke pouring from the stacks, filling the sky with the aroma of baking goods like brownies, blondies, biscuits, fritters, double-decker pies, hollow muffins, baked toast, a pancake, two very, very similar kinds of cookies, lukewarm dough, crispy cobblers, cobblery crisps, carrots cake, and that and uh, a carrots is possessive there, and something we think we hear the bakers call a cheese cake as they push past us through the big double doors and into the building. A cheese cake? Can that be... Inside, bakers bustle here and there, each of them in the midst of a personal cloud of flour like that Peanuts character known to his devoted fans as Pig Sty. We see one of the ovens used for baking. I hope this isn't TMI, but the oven is so hot that we decide that standing next to it is a bad place to engage in a little PDA. So we don't. Some of the baker hats are so tall, they seem like jokes, but no one is laughing. Neither the wearers, nor those wearing more modest baker hats. So we stifle our giggles as best we can, which turns out to be very effective. We don't giggle at all. And at every baker's station, there they are, hanging from flower-coated perches, posing for the bakers. And the bakers, dough on their baking desks, dough in their hands, dough soaring upward in mid-toss, keep one eye always on their models, crafting each good into shape before baking, each good a portrait of those on the perches and baked to stay that way until eaten. We have entered the battery. When old wives tell tales, well, they're mostly about home remedies. That's the kind of tales that old wives like. If and when you become an old wife, you'll feel the same way, and you'll remember how you were told it would happen, and you'll become acutely aware of the passage of time. You will shudder, even if it's only a figurative shudder, and you will immediately call one of your old wife friends and ask her or him if they know of a home remedy for shudders, be they literal or figurative. The Cure for Headaches Bloodletting, bloodletting, and more bloodletting. But the afflicted party must be certain to attract the attention of an infant bat between every bloodletting session. The cure for the special cold. Go to a field containing at least three kinds of herbs. Examine several examples of each kind of herb as carefully as your attention span will allow. Choose the herb you think a bat would be most likely to give to its spouse as an anniversary gift. I hesitate to tell you how much of the herb you're going to have to eat, but it's more than you'll want. A lot more. The cure for two simultaneous toothaches. Inject bat sweat straight into the teeth with a needle as thin as the strand of a spider web. Please remember that if you have only one toothache, this technique will make your mouth hang open like a nutcracker soldier, and your friends will have to punch you in the tailbone to make your lower jaw flap up and down so you can chew food. The cure for not being loved by good people. Become a bold friend of bats. The cure for hair loss. Wait until only one hair remains. I know this sounds counterproductive, but pluck that hair. Do not lose it. Tie it around the waist of a bug you believe will be consumed by a bat. If a bat does indeed eat that bug, your scalp will soon grow hair so thick you'll break your wrist if you try to run a brush through it and no one will ever see or touch your scalp again. The cure for excessive freckles. Find a means of determining the favorite colors of bats. Find a bat whose favorite color is the same color as the freckles you want to be reduced in number. And that's it. The cure for obsessive compulsive disorder. Invite a bat into your bathroom to watch you wash your hands. You will feel too ashamed to give in to the compulsion under the judgmental gaze of the bat in your bathroom. The cure for cannibalism in your community. Release a bat in the middle of your town square. The bat will circle the church steeple thrice, then fly to the cannibal's house, and in a voice identical to the biblical Zacchaeus, the bat will say, The cannibal does not live here. Old wives don't know why the bat always lies, but the bat always lies. So you can be sure that when the bat says the cannibal doesn't live in a house, the cannibal definitely lives in that house. The cure for chicken pox. Take your afflicted child's bed outside and place it along the edge of the woods, preferably so that whether or not the child is in the woods or out of the woods cannot be clearly discerned. 
The bats that attend the child all night will not actually cure the chickenpox, but they will scratch the chickenpox in such a way that the child will receive relief from the scratching, but the scratching will not make the chickenpox worse. Bats are the only living things still in existence that know how to scratch chickenpox with such skill. Some dinosaurs also knew how, but, well. The cure for stuttering. Force the stutterer to memorize this amusing and clever tongue twister. The bat's bad, bad, dad, bad, dad, dad, bad, dad, 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 bat, bat, bad, dad, bat, dad, bad, bad, bat, dad, pat, pad, bat. Once that's accomplished, so too will be the banishment of the stuttering. The cure for lying. Tell the liar that if he or she keeps lying, a bat will come into their room while they sleep, steal all their toys, sell them at a pawn shop, and use the money from the sale of the toys to hire an assassin to kill the liar in a humiliating way at a convocation attended by the liar's entire school. Some of you may wonder if it's appropriate to lie in order to stop someone from lying. But there's an old wives saying that says fight fire with fire, and it's worth noting that the saying fight liar with liar rhymes with that other more commonly known saying about fire. The cure for a burst appendix. Put a bat through medical school. Pay the bat's tuition. Give it a ride to and from class every day. Help it with its homework. And then, when it finally graduates and becomes a full-fledged surgeon, ask the bat to perform an appendectomy on you at a reduced rate. Some bats will only give you a 0.5% discount, which is pretty bad, but some bats will give you anywhere up to a 100% discount, which is still pretty bad since you're on the hook for their tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. Do the bats ever get to eat any of the baked goods, we ask? The bakers look at us as if we're the insane ones when they're the ones dedicating their lives to a career that ends in madness 96% of the time. Well, do they, we ask again? Bats don't like baked goods, says what we at first believe is a sentient cloud of flour, but who we then realize is a baker within an especially dense cloud of flour. How do you know that, we ask. And besides, even if you don't like something, isn't it nice to be asked? We, for example, hate parties, but it still hurts when people don't invite us. It's nice to be given the opportunity to decline. In fact, as much as most people like parties, that's how much we like declining invitations to parties. The baker looks at us with admiration from within his cloud of flour, we assume. Anyway, we say, we're going to offer that bat this freshly baked cinnamon roll, which is shaped exactly like it. We extend the cinnamon roll toward the bat, upon whose likeness the cinnamon roll's shape is based. The bat takes a bite, and alarms begin to go off. Red lights flash. A klaxon, which is the brand name of an electromechanical alerting device, begins to blare. The bat takes another bite. You fools, shouts the baker within his cloud of flour. Don't call the klaxon fools, we say. First of all, there's only one of them, and second of all, it's a brand name. So we shouldn't be seen to disparage it here in case they're one of those small companies that surprises you with how litigious they are. The flour cloud and shrouded baker is furious. Not the klaxon, he shouts. You are the fools, and here come the goons to deal with you. Clattering down the steps from a room with a cartoon of a scowling goon wielding a club over its door comes an immense cloud of flour bristling with clubs. Who knows how many goons could be inside that cloud of flour? We turn, we run, and we leave the battery. Welcome to Regarding the Dawn. This is the time when we take you, the listener, through the wonderful world of nature photography. And this time on the podcast, we will be teaching you all about composition, one of the most basic and yet 
complicated building blocks of great nature photography. We will be... Yeah, you, you know what, Dwayne? I think we should hold off on that. What? Why? There's something that I, has been weighing on my mind lately, and I think we should just cover it right now. Dude, I think be- I've been planning and working on this all week. I, I worked hard on this. Look, I have notes. Yeah, yeah, later, Dwayne. Look, this is really important. This so is, really- is this. This is my turn. You said I could run this one. Oh, you can. You can. It's cool, man. Don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. It's what? fine. How? No, I can't. No. Just just no. Composition. That's what we're doing. Easy, man. Easy. It's just a slight course correction. You can run it. It's cool. Just chill. How can I? What about my notes? Look, we can work with this. Here, let me see your notes. I'll just make a slight adjustment here. Let's see. Hey, don't. what, what are you doing? There. Now we're on the right track. Here you go. Castration? There you go. What the heck are you doing? How is this? That's not composition. Are you high? I mean, what what are you doing? (laughs) Whoa, whoa. Easy, man. Easy, man. This is insane. I don't even want to hear this. This is my turn, and we are doing composition, and you can just... Wait, just calm down, man. It's easy. I know you are nervous about leading the show this month. No, I'm not. You're going to do fine. Trust me. But here, let me give you a start. Let me just get you going. Listeners, today Dwayne is going to explain how your world, your life, your art, your photography, your brain is all full of distractions, and that is crippling your art production. What? Yeah, go on, tell them. Tell them how distractions are everywhere. Yes, listeners, distractions are everywhere, especially here in the room with me now. Take this idiot sitting across from me, for instance. Yes, yes, that's it. Channel your inner podcast host, Dwayne. Let your rage flow through you. What are you doing? What is this? Why won't you let me... Look, look, look. I'll give you another little push. Here, just let me get you rolling, then you can take over. It's easy. I'm gonna give you a little push. All right, okay, everyone. Look, I'm gonna be blunt. One of the big reasons that a lot of your nature photography is really quite mediocre is because you people are not committed to working hard at becoming a better nature photographer. You don't spend enough time working at it, and you spend all your time being distracted and doing things that have nothing to do with honing your craft. You want proof? You want to see how to become really great and concentrate on your craft? Look to the Italians, my friend. Look to the Italians. They understand how to commit. They know that if you really want to become great at your art, you must sacrifice. Back in the 15th century, back in Italy, if you wanted to be considered a real vocal artist, there was no way around it. It was castration or no career at all. The castrati? Exactly. See, I told you, you'd be fine. Now go ahead. Keep run with it. Go. What run with what? Keep going. You run in the you run the show. I set up the ball for it's on the tee for you. Just go run the segment. You have got to be kidding. You cannot cannot be serious. Sure I am. How I know you can do it. I have faith. Have faith in yourself, Dwayne. See, I have faith in you. No, look, no, 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 no not that. I mean, what? What? You, look, just what are you proposing that that our listeners all become eunuchs to 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 do what? I. To become free of hormonal intrusions and to spend all that wasted energy on your art, specifically photography. No, no. I've just decided you are totally off your rocker. No one would be suggesting this. You are out of your gourd. No one thinks this is a good idea. The Italians did. As did all the royalty who sought greatly after the Castrati's superior artistic focus. I'm pretty sure that was abuse, and done before any of those boys could really be sure of what they were consenting to, if anyone bothered to ask for consent at all. And it wasn't their artistic focus that was desirable, it was their non-puberty-effective larynx and elongated ribs that made them so skilled at singing. This will have no effect on our listeners' photography whatsoever! You don't think so? Let's put it to the audience. Think about it, listeners. Think of all that time you could have had back. I mean, if you add up all the millions of hours that you have wasted on objects of your affection, the pining after, the thinking about, daydreaming, writing love poems to, texting, calling on the phone, and subsequently getting hung up on, driving by, riding by, walking Uh, by, the the militant observing, the documenting of every movement, the planning, the charting, graphing, the mapping, the notes, the binders full of research, Um, the measuring and calculating distances and ranges. Ben! What? You're scaring me. 
Who did you do all this stuff to? What? Me? No, no. This is all theoretical. I've, I've never done any of this stuff ever. It's yeah, just a, okay. A, and besides, who wouldn't want an angelic voice to go along with their superior photography skills? Oh, come on! <clears throat> oh, come on, man. This is so beyond wrong. And, and besides, I, I doubt you would ever convince anyone to go... Wait. Have you already committed? Fully? What do you mean? You know, have you become... Castrati? <laughs> Me? No. Why would I? To become less distracted, of course. What? No, I don't need that. I am fully focused. I am not distracted at all. This is for the lesser artists struggling to, you know... Get... Oh, no, 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 no. We we can't have that. We must be the beacons. Nay, the guiding lights oh, that's the same of the thing. artistic community. We must show the way to all the little people who... I don't like your tone. ...look to us to, as icons of the photographic community. Come, let us not shirk from our duties. We must commit fully. Demonstrate your passion for your art, Ben. Hey, sit down. What are you doing? Stay on your side. Come with me to the garage, Ben, and we will set your mind free. No, no, I'm not going anywhere. You stay back. Get back. Get over there. Jason Voorhees, you stay back there. You get over there. Get away from me. <laughs> no, stop it. Quit it. I have pepper spray and rabies and hep C. Get away from me. Okay, if you geniuses think you can fix the underappreciated nature segment, then you're welcome to try. Because, really, let's be honest, this segment is beyond hope. It needs to be put out of its misery. It's gotten worse and worse and worse with every successive episode, and it passed the point of no return some time ago. I naively thought that breaking the external hard drive would give me an opportunity to start over and fix the segment, but I now see how that was just as doomed to failure as every other attempt. The segment is not possible. There's a reason that no other podcast, TV show, radio show, or anything else has ever attempted the underappreciated nature segment, and that's because it can't be done. The underappreciated segment is a bog. It's quicksand, and if I don't put an end to it now, then I fear that the entire podcast will be sucked into it. But, by all means, let's hear your amazing ideas for fixing the unfixable segment. Let's see what you bunch of amateur segment tinkerers have up your sleeve. I'm sure one of you will strike upon the perfect solution for solving all of this segment's myriad fatal problems. So let's check. Let's dive in. Let's read all of the helpful suggestions that flooded my inbox this month. The first brilliant idea is from someone named Grady. He says, uh, let's see. Okay, he says that in order to do the segment, I should have the interviewer ask only yes or no questions and then make sure that the interviewer never says the word yes or no, or even the word no, K-N-O-W. So that way, whenever listeners hear the word yes or the word no, they'll know it's the underappreciated thing from nature talking. And, I mean, give me a break, Grady. No one wants to hear an interview with an underappreciated thing from nature where it only says yes or no. That would be tedious. So the next suggestion comes from a listener named Thaddeus. Uh, Let's see. He suggests that the underappreciated thing from nature write down all of its answers to the interviewer's questions and comments, and then the interviewer can read the underappreciated thing's responses aloud. He gives an example where the interviewer says, Thistle, we're thrilled to have you with us today. The Thistle is writing, and he's written that he's thrilled to be with us today. Okay, this idea sucks, Thaddeus. First of all, Thistles aren't underappreciated, so your example is garbage. Second, the listeners might assume that they're not getting the underappreciated thing's real, unfiltered, unedited thoughts. They might assume that the interviewer is changing the answers to make them be what he wants them to be. I would rather shoot the underappreciated nature segment in the head than have the listeners question its integrity in the slightest. So listener Gina has a suggestion for the segment. Of course she does. She thinks that I should interview an underappreciated thing from nature that is underappreciated because it often confuses itself with an interviewer that is interviewing it. No such thing in nature exists, Gina. Oh, sure, it would be so handy if it did, but I can't just will such a thing into being, and I can't just assign that trait to an underappreciated thing from nature that doesn't actually have that trait. I can't just bend reality to my will for the sake of convenience. If I could, this segment would have been fixed long ago. Don't think you're the first one to ever dream about bending reality to your convenience, Gina. You're just the first to write into a podcast suggesting that the host do such a thing in order to fix a terminally ill segment. 
So here's a suggestion from a listener named Haley. She suggests that I just pay really close attention to what I'm doing while I'm recording and editing the segment. So it's this kind of insight that the segment really needed, and now that I've received such insight, the segment is saved, and of course I'm being sarcastic right now, which I've heard is hard to distinguish over the internet, but I think that applies more to written mediums than it does to audible mediums, such as podcasts, of which this podcast is one of the finer examples, except for several of the other segments, and except for this segment, which is basically a carcass rotting in a ditch and being picked at by scavenging birds. And I'll give you one guess as to who the scavenging birds are. Another listener whose name is Scotty wrote me an email saying that in order to fix the segment, I should hire someone to hold signs while I record that say either you're the interviewer or you're the underappreciated thing from nature. And then as I record, if I get confused as to which one I'm playing at the moment, I can just look at the sign and be reminded. Terrible idea, Scotty, because if even I can't keep track of who I'm supposed to be after a certain point, then there's no way some hired sign holder is going to be able to keep track. He or she will probably hold up the sign that says, you're the interviewer. Well, I'm supposed to be the underappreciated thing from nature, and then where will we be? Right back to confusion, which is the very state that this segment has tried unsuccessfully to avoid at every turn. Terrible suggestion, Scotty. Terrible idea. All right, a listener named Teresa wrote in to say that the only way to fix the segment uh, is to have the underappreciated thing from nature ask the questions and have the interviewer answer them. She argued that many times the questions we choose to ask are actually more revelatory than the answers we choose to give in response to the questions of another. This is obviously the suggestion of an imbecile, and I will not be heeding it on any level. That would be like if someone got bitten by a venomous snake and no one could find the correct antivenin, and yes, I said antivenin with an N because that's correct, but anyway, no one could find the correct antivenin, and then Teresa came running into the room waving something over her head and shouting, Try this instead! And when the doctors injected it into the patient, the patient began to convulse immediately, and the doctors turned to Teresa and asked, What did you just have us inject into the snake bite victim? And Teresa responded like, uh, I don't know, she responded like, uh... She responded like, that was a liquefied cinder block. Which, look, I've made a lot of comments about hastening the end of this segment today, but if I'm going to use a cinder block to do it, then I'm going to use the cinder block in its intended way, by dropping it from a great height over and over until I manage to either hit the target or incur the wrath of a neighbor who wonders if perhaps we could move this unsightly operation to the backyard where kids can't see it and where, frankly, other adults can't see it. And there's Hunter. Oh, Hunter just had to write in. And of course we've saved the worst for last. Dear Adam, he writes, why don't you just have someone else play the underappreciated thing from nature while you play the interviewer or vice versa? Look, Hunter, I may not have figured out how to make an impossible segment idea work, but in what world can your suggestion be read as anything other than flagrant disrespect for everything that this segment was intended to stand for? The logistics of this segment may have proved insurmountable, but if there's one thing that I could always honestly boast about with the underappreciated nature segment, it was that its intentions were pure. And now you want me to take that away from it. You want me to take the one thing it had going for it away from it. And to what end? Because you think having a second person to play one of the roles will fix the logistics? I have news for you, Hunter. Adding people to a project complicates logistics. It makes the situation more complex, not less. If not, even I, acting entirely by myself, can keep track of whether I'm the interviewer or the underappreciated thing from nature during any given portion of dialogue. How are two people going to accomplish such a feat? Don't you see how the confusion will double or perhaps even grow exponentially? But, 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 that's how you do it when Grang calls in. Wrong, Hunter. Wrong, because Grang and I are not playing roles when he calls in. Those are real conversations, and I rarely forget which one I am in real conversation. Hunter, you dunce. And I know I said that Hunter's suggestion was the last one, but there's actually one more, and it's from a listener named Adam Drent, and he writes, Even though I'm more of the host of Out of All Doors than I am a listener, I still thought I should write in to suggest that you never give up on the underappreciated nature segment, because even though things seem very dark right now, you will figure out a way to save the segment, and once you do, wow, what a segment. Wow, what an email, and Adam Drent, if you're listening, I just want to thank you personally for restoring my hope in the underappreciated nature segment, and I want you, Adam Drent, to know that I, Adam Drent, will do everything in my power to reward your faith in me, Adam Drent, and I want you to know that when I wrote that email, uh, I mean, okay, I want you to know that when you wrote that email, I was, 
Or, okay. Wait, when I wrote that email, I was in a pretty bad place. And so were you. So, <clears throat> so uh, you sent it to me, and I remembered that I had wanted you to read it on the show in order to prove to you that you could do what I so desperately wanted me to, uh, wanted you to, no, wanted me to, uh. <sighs> all right, uh, we're recording, Greg, but I have to say, I'm, I'm still pretty leery about talking with you as long as you're mixed up with that cartel. Although, I'm, I'm seeing here on the Skype call that you're in a different location now, so I'm hoping that means you cut ties with the cartel and left Des Moines. Well, you're half right, Drench. I did leave Des Moines, but I've actually never been on better terms with the cartel. Which should be a cause for celebration, not for leeriness. Since I'm in the cartel's good graces, and since I'm an ambassador for Out of All Doors to the cartel, then that means that Out of All Doors is in the cartel's good graces too, which is great news for the podcast. All right, first of all, you're not an ambassador for Out of All Doors. Second, where does being in the cartel's good graces put us in relation to the law? Did you ever think about that? Please, Durant, the cartels can handle the law. Don't worry about the law. If the law is listening, though, I just want to make it clear that I don't endorse anything that Grang is doing, nor have I ever endorsed anything he's ever done in the past, nor will I ever endorse anything he does in the future. That said, where are you, Grang? Are you in the lobby of a motel? Yeah, I am. Back in the land of the dedicated and the home of the dedicated. Right now, about 100 miles outside of Chile, Winnipeg, USA. Winnipeg is in Canada, Grang. Drent, listen, if I was in Mexico last time I talked to you, when I drove straight north and crossed one national border, what country would I be in? The U.S. Exactly, Drent. I rest my case. See, this is why it's a mistake to ever concede you a point, Greg. I do it just so we can move past it, and then I end up paying for it for months. If Winnipeg is the city you're in, what state are you in, Greg? Well, that's a little tougher to determine. Probably Arizona, though, because I've been on the 10 for a long time, so I must be getting close. Why are you trying to go to Arizona if you're still in the cartel? What, what are you talking about? What's going on? Well, I'm running drugs to Phoenix, Arizona, Drent, and I'm doing that so I can regain the Crow Chief's trust and meet with him face-to-face when I get back so I can ask him for the login information for the old Out of Old Doors blog, just like you want me to. No, I do not want you to run drugs to Phoenix or anywhere, Grang, especially if you're calling yourself an ambassador for Out of All Doors. But you do want me to stay dedicated to my pursuit of the login information, which means doing whatever it takes for the sake of Out of All Doors, doing whatever No, I don't ta- want you to run drugs across international borders. I don't want you to do any highly illegal things for the sake of Out of All Doors. How did this happen anyway? I thought you were just hanging out with the cartel until the Crow Chief came back so you could ask him for the password. I thought you were such good friends with him that you were just going to walk right up to him and ask him for the password when he came back. Well, that was the plan, but if this quest to reacquire the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog has taught me anything, Drent, it's that plans change. Okay. Plans change. Do not say it again. And it's because plans do that that I'm in the midst of running a car full of drugs to Phoenix, Arizona today. Because even though I know that the Crow Chief and I were close at one time... I believe his experience with being wrongfully convicted of murder has changed him. I mean, it obviously has. Look at him. He used to be the world's foremost crow trainer, and now he's the head of a Mexican drug cartel. Anyway, he's less trusting now. He is in a safe house near the city, and only a few people know where he is. He's keeping his true friends, like me, at arm's length because he doesn't feel that he knows who his true friends are anymore. He'd known some of those Croton cops who arrested him and testified against him for Adam's murder for his whole life. So he told his lieutenants he wasn't meeting with anyone in person until further notice, and I assumed he'd make an exception for me. But when I told his lieutenant to tell him that I was Greg, the guy who'd worked with the Crow Chief on the campaign to reinstate... Don't say that again either. Well, anyway, the Crow Chief did not make an exception for me, so I knew that I'd have to do something to re-earn his trust. So for the last week, 
or just over a week. I've been a week. Driving. You've been driving around for a week looking for Phoenix, Arizona. This is because you're in the wrong country. I haven't been driving around looking for Phoenix, Trent. I'm on the ten, right where I'm supposed to be. If I just keep following it, then eventually it'll lead me right to Phoenix, and from there I can look up the address the cartel gave me before I left, make the delivery that this Phoenix connection has been desperate to receive. I'll be a hero, and the Crow Chief will see that he can trust me after all, and he'll grant me an audience, and I'll ask for the login information for the blog. So you volunteered for this? Well, in a way, it was actually a little more complex than that because of how the Crow Chief chooses his drivers. How does he choose his drivers? Well, he owns a local racetrack, and whenever he needs a new driver, he holds a special street-legal vehicle race with advertised first-place winnings of $1,000. But what he actually does is stash packages of drugs inside of every vehicle so that when they finish, he can approach the winning driver and blackmail him into driving drugs across the country for him by pointing out that he just finished transporting a package of drugs over 200 miles in one race which is a serious offense. He threatens to turn them into the cops unless they agree to transport drugs for him. Now, I suspect that he might be lying to them about the actual legal ramifications of unknowingly driving a package of drugs around in a circle for a couple hours, but he is probably right that the cops wouldn't like it. So anyway, apparently they've been trying to deliver this shipment to Phoenix for a while, but the drivers keep getting busted on the way, and the whole shipment gets confiscated, and the drivers go to jail, and Phoenix never gets their shipment. So I had just had another request to meet with the Crow Chief rejected by one of his lieutenants when I found out that they were holding another street-legal vehicle race that night to find a new driver because Phoenix was getting really anxious about getting their shipment. So I was sent with a crew of a few guys to be one of the inspectors at the track, which really just means I was one of the guys tasked with stashing the drugs in the cars that were going to be in the race. Wait, so how, how does that work? Well, the drivers can't be present for the inspection, so they give the inspectors their keys and wait inside while the inspectors go out to ostensibly check to ensure that the cars are actually street legal. But actually what the inspectors are doing is stashing drugs in the cars for eventual blackmail purposes. And drugs have to be stashed in all the cars since we don't know who's going to win. So anyway, the first guy whose car I was going to inspect walked up to me and handed me his keys... But when he saw Teddy and Sammy sitting on my shoulders and eating their Cheetos, something happened. He looked down at the package of Cheetos he was munching on, and this look of incredible sadness came over his face. Then he hurled his Cheetos to the ground and grabbed me by the arm and shouted, I'm nothing like them. I'll change. I'll make better decisions. I'm, I'm going home to my family right now. And then he stripped off his jumpsuit, tore off his helmet, and threw it all in a garbage can. Well, as you might imagine, right then I saw my chance. No one was watching, so I confirmed on the paperwork that the man's car had passed inspection. Then I put the jumpsuit on, put the helmet on, ran out to the car, loaded Sammy and Teddy into the back seat, and drove to the starting line. I had entered the race, and I intended to win. Then I would be the one chosen to deliver drugs to Phoenix, and I would, of course, succeed in doing so, and I would thereby regain the Crow Chief's trust. Wait, hold on. Oh, all right, so... Something seems off here, because there's no way you actually won the race, yet you claim that you are delivering the drugs to Phoenix for the cartel right now. You see, this this is your problem, Drent, your presuppositions. You assume that me winning the race was impossible, so you deny the evidence that's right in front of your face. So you did win? Drent, do you remember the story about the tortoise and the hare? Yes. Then you understand my approach. Slow and steady wins the race, Trent. While everyone else was tearing around the track at 100 miles an hour, I never exceeded a reasonable 55 miles an hour. And I made sure to properly signal whenever I turned, which was all the time because the track was circular. And I made certain to ensure a safe following distance to drive defensively, etc. And that strategy worked? You won? I achieved my goal. Of winning the race? I achieved my ultimate goal. What place did you finish in? Well, technically last place by several hours. But the Crow Chief, who was watching from his special box seat, saw my technique and was stricken with inspiration. His drivers weren't making it to their destinations precisely because they were fast drivers. He had prioritized speed of delivery over safety 
and therefore all his drivers had been pulled over for speeding with cars full of drugs. He realized that if I would not drive recklessly during an actual race, then I certainly wouldn't drive recklessly while delivering drugs out on the highways of America. So when I finally finished, one of his lieutenants, who I hadn't met yet, was waiting for me near the finish line. Fortunately, after shrieking and squawking for the entire race, Teddy and Sammy had exhausted themselves and fallen asleep on the back seat. So I was actually able to hear what the lieutenant was saying to me. He gave me the whole talk about how I had just transported drugs, how I needed to do a job for the crow chief now, and so on. But of course, I hadn't actually transported any drugs since I never put them in the car in the first place. But I wanted the delivery job, so I accepted the scrap of paper with the address on it that he gave me, drove to the location, they loaded up my car with drugs, had me memorize an address in Phoenix, and sent me on my way. As soon as I left town, I headed straight north for the U.S. border. Once I crossed successfully, I stopped and asked for directions to the 10 and followed those directions, found the 10, and now I'm just following it all the way to Phoenix. All right. I feel like my ability to judge the ridiculousness of a situation has been permanently ruined, Grang. I have no way of telling if this is more ridiculous or less ridiculous than any of the previous messes you've gotten into. That said, there are a few things that I don't understand. Ask away, Drent. I'm always happy to clarify. Okay, so whatever border it was that you crossed, how did you get a car full of drugs past the border patrol? Well, that was one moment where Sammy and Teddy's belligerents actually served me well. They were so obnoxious that neither I nor the border guard could hear the other one speaking, and eventually he just got fed up and looked at my driver's license and saw that I was a U.S. citizen, and so he waved me through. I assume one of the things he was trying to say to me was welcome home, but as I said, I couldn't really hear anything, and neither could he. It had been nearly an hour since Teddy and Sammy had eaten, so, as I said, they were certainly making their displeasure known. Uh, well, I guess that answers that. So, my, my other question, all right, Grant, my belief is that you've driven from Des Moines, Iowa, to somewhere near Winnipeg on Route 10 in Canada, which should only take around 17 hours, according to Google Maps. Your contention is that you've driven from somewhere in Mexico and are headed for Phoenix, Arizona on Interstate 10 in America, commonly known as the 10 by locals. So, so I checked to see how long it would take, even if you were driving from the southern part of Mexico and even taking into account your, your questionable route-finding ability, it still looks like it should take less than 40 hours to be where you are. How has it taken you over a week and you've still only gotten as far as you've gotten? Well, Drent, if you'll recall, the Crow Chief specifically chose me for the job instead of the winner because of my cautious driving, which does mean that I travel at a little slower pace than those speed demons you see out here tearing up the highways. But the benefit of that method is that I do arrive unarrested and in one piece with the delivery mostly intact. Okay, but Greg, these Google Maps estimates are calculated based on the speed limit. So if you're driving the speed limit, this is how long it should take you. Okay, that's fine, Drent, but those estimates don't include stops. I'm not a robot. I can't just drive nonstop until I arrive somewhere. That's especially true with Teddy and Sammy in the car, who need to stop every 20 minutes or so for snacks, fresh air, and to relieve tension because, unfortunately, they hate riding in cars. Also, on the first day, I noticed a mysterious van following me, which I assume was one of the feds or maybe a rival cartel or something. So I've been making a concerted effort to keep them guessing by driving off the route, doubling back, diverting through small towns and stuff like that. And, of course, part of safe driving is that you have to make sure that you're well-rested, so I made good use of the per diem that the cartel gave me to stop early in the day and stay at motels every night. Which really works out because Teddy and Sammy can really only stand a few hours in the car per day anyway. Now, of course, my per diem ran out after the second day, so I had to sell one of the packages of drugs along the way for some extra cash. But I think the cartel will understand when I point out to them that the per diem was insufficient for the needs of a safe driver. And, by the way, all this brings me to my new segment idea for when I get the login information, which is titled On the Road. Now, the trick of the title is that you think it's going to be a Kerouac-style account of my adventures while traveling. But no, when I say on the road, I mean on the subject of the road. 
You see? Because so many road trip accounts fail to focus on the most important aspect of the road trip, namely the road itself. How do they make the road? What are the different kinds? Who determines what color the lines will be? Who determines if the lines are solid or dotted? Who decides which roads get rumble strips or reflectors? Who decides when a road curves? And what about medians? Stuff like that. The topic is endlessly rich, Trent. It could almost be its own standalone podcast. Maybe a spinoff from Out of All Doors once it builds its own fan base after the second or third installment. Anyway, so in my excitement for that idea, I've been pulling over to the side of the road a lot to jot down my observations about the road to use for my segment. But I'm actually making better time than you think, Trent, because the speed limit here in Arizona has been raised to 100 miles an hour. That means that whenever I am actually driving, I'm making excellent time. Grant, you're in Canada. You're on Route 10 in Canada, and you're driving north toward the Arctic wilderness. Those speed limit signs mean 100 kilometers an hour. So actually, every time you're driving, you're doing exactly what the Crow Chief didn't want you to do, which is speed with a car full of his drugs. In fact, Grant, do, do you know the story of the tortoise and the hare? Of course, Trent. I just mentioned it earlier. You're the hare! You're speeding in short bursts, but then you're stopping constantly to rest, to eat, to take inane notes, to lose your pursuers, to sell drugs to strangers that you transported across an international border. You're worse than the hare. You're not even going the right direction. You're in the wrong country. Greg, the cartel is going to kill you. They're literally going to kill you. When they said they wanted you to go slow and safe... They probably meant they wanted you to do the trip from Des Moines to Phoenix in two days instead of one. It's been over a week and you still haven't gotten there, and you're not going to get there. Have you heard anything from them? They probably think you stole the drugs. Well, I haven't heard from them because Teddy either accidentally or intentionally sat on my phone and crushed it. But even if it were true that the cartel was upset with me, the whole thing will be cleared up when I arrive in Phoenix and make the delivery. Which could be as soon as tomorrow. I suppose the one thing in your favor is that they probably have no idea that you're in Canada. Drent, again, I'm not in Canada. I'm in the U.S. Well, if they're listening and they believe you, then maybe your stupidity will get you out of the mess it got you into. Or, you know, prolong your life by another few days. Drent, I should probably go check on the crows. I left them in the room with a pile of snacks, but I hear a commotion from upstairs, so I'm a little concerned that the snacks might have run out. All right, Grang, bye. Bye. At Gentleman's Mills, we know how difficult it can be to get to sleep at night. Whether it's anxiety over job, the coughing of a spouse, or the eternal strobe light mounted atop the urn containing a loved one's ache, sleep can be hard to come by. That's why you need Gentleman's Mills sleep aids, insomnia busters, and round-trip tickets to Dreamland. The All-Temp Max Dress This super mattress cycles through all temperature ranges over the course of an evening. From searing desert heat to subarctic frigidity, you'll experience all the temperatures to maximize your sleep experience. Rumple Stilt Skin This rumpled animal skin attached to a wooden stilt gives you a comfy sleep, awakening you refreshed and with a misguided feeling you can spin straw into gold, launching you into a downward spiral eventually ending up in total financial ruin. The Unlowered Inspired by robots, who do not need to lie down horizontally to sleep, Gentleman's Mills purchased these defunct Murphy beds from a supplier for pennies on the dollar and is selling them to you for dollars on the penny. No matter how much you want them to, these beds do not lower from the wall, instead staying upright throughout the night. Even when pulled by industrial winch, the beds remain intact while the foundation of the house surrounding them crumbles to dust. We suggest sledgehammering a path to the upright bed, getting under the covers somehow, and sleeping entirely upright. Sleeping vertically is in. It's the wave of the future. 
Slowed down TED Talks. Good news! Gentlemen's Mills has acquired the exclusive republishing rights to several of the lowest rated TED Talks. While these TED Talks have been called tedious and monotone in their online reviews, we've repurposed them, slowing down their tempos to a nice murky growl, making them even more boring yet, all of which lulls you restfully into slumber. Water Tent. No, this is not just a big wet tent. This is a combination waterbed and tent, perfect for those who love the outdoors almost as much as they love the comfort of their comfy waterbed at home. Gentleman's Mills has now combined the two into one mega product, a tent that contains a queen-size 196-gallon waterbed built into it. The water tent can easily be folded into itself and carried via hand or dog sled. Upgrade to the 235-gallon California King for pennies more. Home Invader Shusher Never lose sleep because of a noisy criminal ransacking your house again with a Gentleman's Mills Home Invader Shusher, now with three different shushing voices to choose from, Southern Gent, School Marm, and Baby's First Shush. Total Head Pillow Insert your head all the way inside this soft, pillowy sphere for the most restful night's sleep you can imagine, ideal for those who need only shallow, infrequent breaths. What Not to Dread Read this extensive list of things not to dread right before you go to bed and then lie down alone in the dark with the mind partitioned off from all potential sources of dread. From death to your complex web of deceit coming undone in front of everyone you love, what not to dread has you covered. Tedious Novel Nothing tells your brain it's time to sleep like Gentleman's Mill's tedious novel, which is actually a cut-and-paste mishmash of several tedious novels, along with many additional descriptions of the logistics of various characters getting in and out of cars. Which doors are opening? Who is buckling or unbuckling seatbelts? Which doors are closing? Whether the driver is shifting into drive, park, or reverse, and so on. Sleep Contract For those who need to be contractually bound to sleep in order to get any. The Gentleman's Mills Adjustable Mattress. Instantly adjust your Gentleman's Mills Adjustable Mattress into a much thinner mattress of four times the width by twisting the dial from the off setting to the thinner slash wider setting. The edge of the mattress has been known to shear nightstands in half when thinning and widening. Are we cartoons? This faux philosophical query posits the idea that we are cartoon characters drawn by a master animator and that, therefore, we are capable of inducing sleep in ourselves through the imagining of sheep leaping over a portion of fence. Gentlemen's Mills Church, a full church, because some people fall asleep well in church. Dream Simulator. This video cassette depicts a dream from the first person POV for those who can't fall asleep and have dreams of their own. Depicted is the common dream of looking around the interior of a garage for eight minutes. Fewer sleeves spray. Are the sleeves on your pajama tops costing you hours of sleep every night? Just spray your pajamas with Gentleman's Mills Fewer Sleeves Spray and within a week you'll begin to notice discoloration on the sleeves. Within a month, the sleeves will have begun to rot in earnest. And within three months, the sleeves will be gone for good. Doctors, do warn that you may experience a sensation known as phantom sleeves for up to a decade after the sleeves are gone. Like a log. What better way to sleep like a log than to look, sound, feel, even smell like a log? More of an idea than a product or service, but if you use this idea, please send Gentleman's Mills $239.95 in cash hidden within the pages of a magazine depicting pictures of cars that are cool despite their preposterous lowness to the ground. Sleeping Pills Please note that this is two separate products that come as one packaged deal. The sleeping product is a bit hard to describe, but the pills are exactly what they sound like. Tongue Holster Native sturdy three-ply paper towel, this product encases your tongue with extra absorbent power so that you can fall asleep in public with no worry of drooling on yourself or others. Depending on your personal slobberiness, you will need to wake up every 20 to 40 minutes when the tongue holster gets saturated so you can apply a fresh one. Close up your eyes. Lie on down. Begin to achieve a state of relaxation. You find yourself behind a barn, leaning your back against the side of the barn. In front of you, a pasture full of cows grazing on grass, lowing like the cattle in Awake in a Manger. 
Immediately behind you, barn. In your left hand is a whole container of cigarettes. I believe I've heard the package they come in referred to as a carton. In your right hand is a lighter of cigarettes, brand name Zippo. But if you think that's how much it costs, Zippo being a fun way to express the number zero, you're in for a rude surprise because a cursory search of the internet has revealed that a Zippo brand lighter of cigarettes will set you back somewhere between $5 and $245. One has to assume that the wide array of price points is a result of the fact that some of the Zippos are so poorly constructed that they can barely light one cigarette, whereas some Zippo lighters are so well-constructed that they can light every cigarette in town and still be home in time to accidentally burn down the house with the whole family inside of it before dinner. You open the lighter carefully, not wanting to be too flippant about it. You extract one of the cigarettes from the carton in your hand with your long, long lips, each lip seemingly longer than the other, until you look at the other and think, no, that's the longer lip. You bite down into the brown end of the cigarette, holding it firmly between your teeth, as it is so important to do during the lighting portion of the process. You press the fire button on your lighter, and Zippo! Fire gushes forth in a little fountain of napalm, which arcs orangely across your shoes, until you interrupt the stream with the white end of your cigarette, which quickly takes flame. You close the lighter of cigarettes and drop it back into its shoulder holster. Your cigarette trickles smoke from the minuscule inferno at its tip. Now you're smoking a cigarette. Smoking is a good way to get smoke directly inside of your body, and that's exactly what you do. You're a natural, and you don't care who knows it, except for the people from whom you're hiding behind the barn. You grip the cigarette in your fist so it knows who is boss, and, crucially, who is not boss. You blow rings of smoke out of your mouth, and they are perfect circles, which you have heard is scientifically impossible. But if your naked eye is to be believed, and why shouldn't it be, then these smoke circles are indeed perfect, which makes you wonder what other supposed scientific impossibilities are actually possible. A human living to age 115? A monster truck ramping over more cars than you'd expect? A gorilla learning how to paint a picture of something other than a gorilla giving a zookeeper a sound spanking? Now you try blowing some smoke out of your nose. It's a huge success. You blow out so much smoke that you start to wonder if all that smoke came from the cigarette or if you already had some smoke up in your nose before you started smoking the cigarette. The smoke keeps coming. So much smoke is coming out of your nose that the cows are starting to notice. Their lowing takes on a note of, how shall we phrase this, disquiet. The smoke darkens. Now you're concerned that you've set your skull on fire. But don't worry, this is a common misconception among first-time smokers. You have not set your skull on fire. Only one first-time smoker has ever set her skull on fire, and that was because she didn't have enough sense to know not to cough. As long as you don't cough, and why would you, you have no reason to fear catching your skull on fire while you smoke for the first time. Eventually, the smoke from your nose subsides and the cows, eyes watering, go back to grass grazing. You taste something sweet on the back of your tongue. Why, that must be the nicotine you've heard so much about. It occurs to you that you are already addicted to it. But oh well, if you gotta be addicted to something, might as well be nicotine. Because at least when you're addicted to nicotine, you can start tossing the irreverent term nickfit around in casual conversation. You thought you'd have to smoke at least three or four cigarettes before you'd earn the right to say nickfit. But you're not even done with your first, and already you're saying, I'm going to need another cigarette from the carton after I finish this one, or else I'm going to have a nick fit. When you aren't actively puffing the cigarette, you're holding it between your index finger and your middle finger. To be more specific, you're holding it between the index finger of your right hand and the middle finger of your left hand, while also trying to hold onto the carton of cigarettes still in your left hand. If only there were a cigarette carton shoulder holster like there is for the Zippo. After a good three hours of thorough smoking, your first cigarette is almost done. It's down to its stubby little bottom, its burning tip nearly flush with your lips. Time to discard that cigarette bottom. You pluck it from your mouth and grind it against the side of the barn, burning your hand and leaving a black streak on the freshly painted barn. But you are the one who painted the barn, so you get to decide if and when cigarettes get stubbed out on it. Well, you didn't paint the whole barn, but you did paint that portion of the barn, and because of what you painted on that portion of the barn, everyone decided that the whole barn needed to be repainted, so in a way, you were directly responsible for the whole barn being repainted because it wouldn't have happened without you.
With the cigarette bottom safely extinguished, you toss it onto the ground and you stamp on it with the heel of your cowboy boot, which you first take the time to change into. And then, when the cigarette bottom is suitably stamped, you change back into whatever you were wearing before. Crocs. Well, maybe not Crocs, but hold on a minute. Do you guys remember Crocs? Because I do remember Crocs, and the main thing I remember about them is that there was nothing funny about them, and nothing funny was ever said about them, and they were never even mentioned in proximity to something funny being said. You pull another cigarette from the carton with your long lips, which, in tandem, function a bit like a tentacle that can also kiss, whistle, and produce a tongue from within its center to lick round and round the edges of the tentacle to indicate a desire for food without a word being spoken. You light this second cigarette, and it's got the same bold, smooth flavor that you demand of buttermilk. You decide to find out what happens when you lick the back of the cigarette this time. What happens is that you get your tongue all cigarette which isn't a bad thing. You draw some smoke into your comically pink lungs and decide to see how long you can hold it there. You begin to count the seconds. One, you shout, to indicate the passage of one second, and all the smoke escapes your lungs like mist through prison bars. It's scientifically impossible to shout the word one without exhaling. You wonder if any of this smoke is getting into parts of your body other than your lungs, such as your intestines, heart, or mouth. It seems highly likely, especially in the case of the mouth, since you're taking your cigarette according to the customary oral fashion. You pretend to be Humphrey Bogart, a man whose cigarette usage you have been well aware of since an angel alerted you to it in a vision. Ka, you say. Sablanca, you continue, concluding the word. Here's looking at you, kid, you say, alerting a kid to the fact that here is looking at him or her. The cigarette in the corner of your mouth enhances your smirk. By an order of magnitude, I'm not super clear on how to use the phrase order of magnitude in this context. You hear someone calling your name. Bloodhounds bay. You can hear them straining at their leashes. You spit your cigarette out of your mouth and kick it in half before it hits the ground. Now when the bloodhounds find it, they might think that you were two men, and that one of you lit the front half of the cigarette but didn't smoke it, and that the other of you chewed on the back half of the cigarette but never lit it. You vault over the fence and disappear among the cows, blending in as if you yourself have exactly one stomach like cows do. And now, as you open your eyes and return to your life, take the piece of smoking cigarettes for the first time with you this month, but don't actually smoke them because their mascots are too mature now, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 30th episode of Out of All Doors. Here are this month's writing and performance credits. Matt Martin, Ben Bird, Chris Nichols, and Grang Lynch. The music credits are as follows. Casey By, J.J. Evans, Chris Nichols. And Aaron Eikenberry set up the technical stuff for me. Please rate this podcast. Please write a review. Please subscribe. I also have another podcast called Bedtime Stories and another concluded podcast called One Man's World. You can find them on iTunes or on my website, hugepop.com, where you can also find a link to the music I make as the mispronouncer. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash hugepop, where for $1 or more per month, you can get access to exclusive content. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a month with the 31st episode of Out of All Doors.